Welcome to the Living Leadership Podcast. Equipping leaders to live in Christ joyfully and serve Him faithfully. Many will rejoice because of His birth. Great in the sight of the Lord. Filled with the Holy Spirit even before He's born. A prophet of the Most High. A voice calling in the wilderness. Among those born of women, there is no one greater. I'm sure by now you've realised that all of those statements are about John, the son of Zachariah and Elizabeth, who's best known to us as John the Baptist. They're heady words of praise spoken by the angel Gabriel, by his father and by the Lord Jesus. And for quite some time, I've been drawn to the character of John, not so much because of what was said about him, but because of what he said about Jesus. I finally put my mind to looking more closely at the life and words of John during 2021. And the result was a book which I entitled Clarion Call, Finding Joy in Christ with John the Baptist. The book contains a series of reflections on the meaning and significance of 12 episodes involving John or statements John made and it comes along with questions for personal reflection and group discussion. Now in this series for the Living Leadership podcast, I'll be drawing out some lessons from John specifically for Christian leaders. If you want to read more, my book is available through Amazon. In this episode entitled Moved by Joy, I want to focus on the first recorded action of John. The action John is most famous for, of course, is baptising people in the River Jordan. He's also known for his unusual culinary habits and dress sense. But the first action we read about in scripture was much simpler. Let me read from Luke chapter 1, verses 39 to 45. In those days Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy, and blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfilment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. It's a familiar scene. The loving father rests his hand on his wife's belly as she excitedly says, There, did you feel that one? It's a special moment of connection, a tangible link with the life stirring in the womb. It's as close as the father can come, at least for now, to the little one, he longs to hold in his arms. Elizabeth and Zachariah would have known little of how their baby's body was developing in the depths of Elizabeth's womb. But they knew that God had a plan for their son. They'd read the Hebrew scriptures, what we know as the Old Testament, and they believed in what they said. They knew an individual's significance didn't start at some point in his or her development with the kicking of a leg or the first cry, but it started in the unique purposes of God for him or her. 
The prophet Jeremiah testified to this truth. He heard God telling him, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, and before you were born, I consecrated you. King David also recognised God's concern for and plans for each individual. He wrote, My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them! Those famous words from Psalm 139, verses 15 to 17. So this is the testimony of Scripture. God gives life to every individual. God watches over the development of every individual. God knows every individual. God has a plan for every individual. As a believing couple, Zachariah and Elizabeth would have known that this son of theirs would play his part in God's plan. But the angel Gabriel had also given them insights into God's purposes for their son when he spoke to Zachariah in the temple. Read about it in Luke chapter 1. His words conveyed an enhanced awareness of their child's uniqueness. For a start, they knew it was a boy without the benefit of an ultrasound. And they also knew they would not be free to choose his name. The name John was given by the angel. And they had a reasonable indication that this son would not follow his father into the priesthood. Instead, his part in God's purposes would be as the leader of a great revival that would prepare people for something new. God was about to do. John was set apart for ministry from before his birth. And I suppose that's also true of you and me. We've been set apart by God. God knew us before we were born. But I doubt that many of our parents had an angelic visitation to remind them of it. It would be wrong to suggest that those who are in paid Christian ministry are different from others in this respect. God's purpose for each individual is unique. And every believer has a part to play in his service. We shouldn't rank those as more or less important or praiseworthy. Those of us who work for churches and Christian organisations are not superior to anyone else in this respect. As God's people, we're simply seeking to be faithful to his leading. And yet there might be a sense in which reflecting on John's distinctive calling can be helpful to those of us who are in paid ministry roles, set apart as ministers of the gospel. John was called to be a radical. He was a powerful reminder of a different set of values set apart in a special way. The angel said he was never to touch alcohol, and John also adopted his unusual clothes and diet. He lived out in the desert. And by normal human expectations, John might have been expected to follow his father into the respectable profession of priesthood with all the status and privileges that brought. His name could have been expected to reflect that identity too, something chosen from the genealogy of priests gone by. Being a priest, although it was a religious calling, amongst first century Judaism, it was respectable and it carried with it a degree of social status. And I suppose that's how Christian ministry was in generations past. Rightly or wrongly, ministers had influence, respect, and status in the community. 
And that's hardly true anymore, I think. Those who follow God's call into so-called full-time Christian ministry are now more likely to be viewed as oddities or even extremists. To leave the prospect of a respectable career for this pathway doesn't compute in the world's eyes. To wrap up our whole identity in the truth that John's name speaks of, that God is gracious, well, that's what we do when we become people who live to serve and share the gospel of grace. But there's a loss associated with it. A loss of status, a loss of potential earnings, a loss of respect, facing misunderstanding and opposition. And as I say that, I feel a need to sound a warning note. And as I do that, I'm speaking both from personal experience and from what pastors tell me in my work with living leadership. Many of you left the prospect of well-paid, prestigious careers to serve the Lord, but you're seldom praised for doing it. The world certainly doesn't praise you. It gives its awards and plaudits to people in the kinds of jobs you didn't pursue. And sadly, Christians often don't recognise it either. They might not expect you to live in a desert and get by on foraging insects and wild honey, but they don't pay you what many of the professionals in your congregation earn. And over time, if you're not careful, this can eat into you, especially if you lack encouragement or when you face unfair criticisms. It can really get us down. Satan comes along and whispers in our ears, your work has no value. You're a bit of a failure. Look at your prospects and look where you are now. Or maybe he takes the opposite tack with you. No one appreciates you. You deserve so much more. So why not indulge yourself? At least make use of the power and the influence that you do have for your own sake. You see how subtle those temptations can be? And they're dangerous. We've got to guard our hearts against them. We need to get right back to the wonderful truth that God's calling to us to serve the gospel and to serve him and to serve his people is all of grace. We need to learn, I suggest, from John's first recorded action, his wriggle in Elizabeth's womb. Elizabeth and Zachariah must have prayed over John's tiny body long before Elizabeth felt him move, as all faithfilled parents do. When the first kick came, they saw it not as the entry of life, but a confirmation of their hopes. Imagine Zachariah's arthritic hands on her wrinkled belly, his silent smile, dumbstruck by the angel as he felt the movement, his voiceless lips moving in prayer. What was hidden would soon be seen. Mary's visit to the hill country of Judea came in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy. By that stage, Elizabeth would have felt her baby kick many times, but this time it was different. We don't know what made Elizabeth realise that this leap was not ordinary. Was it stronger? Did it feel different somehow from previous movements, or was it just the timing coinciding with the voice of Mary? What we do know is that God gave that elderly mother-to-be a prophetic insight that the kick had meaning. A leap for joy, she called it. 
It's one of those biblical declarations that explodes into our consciousness and stretches the limits of our understanding. How can a six-month fetus feel joy? A 12-inch long body, yes, fully formed, but in the darkness of the womb, how can it sense someone's approach? How could ears muffled by amniotic fluid recognise a new voice as that of the mother of their mother's Lord? Well, of course, whenever any of us hears the voice of the Lord, his prompting responds to his presence. It's never just a natural phenomenon, is it? This baby was already filled with the Holy Spirit as the angel had promised his father. The Spirit was at work in him. But supernatural as this prenatal worship dance was, it stands as a powerful testimony to the personhood of the unborn child. Created by God, known by God, capable of being filled and used by God. How tragic when our modern culture sees the lives of unborn children as dispensable and their value as dependent on being wanted. If John's prenatal act of worship doesn't convince you of the value of the individual, pause and think about who else was present. Well, there was Elizabeth, of course, Zachariah, perhaps, Mary, certainly but also Mary's unborn son. She's much earlier in her pregnancy. He's perhaps only a, a ball of cells, newly implanted or about to implant in her womb. And his name was also angel given. The name that would be above every other name. The only name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. As we read in Acts 4, 12. The name Jesus. Jesus was present. An embryo. And if you want to see the root of human dignity, here it is above all else, that God became one of us. So John worshipped in the womb when his mother bore him close to the as yet unborn Lord he was called to serve. The Spirit moved the fetal son of Zachariah to joyous celebration of the embryonic Son of God. And for the next three months, their bodies developed in proximity until John was almost ready to be born, and Jesus' body was around the size of an apple. And we don't know if they met each other outside the womb before they met at the Jordan for John to baptise Jesus. We might speculate that mothers who had been that close in pregnancy must have come together for special occasions, but speculation won't lead us to a definitive answer. What we do know is that this kick, which must have been every bit as remarkable to first century physician Luke, who recorded it, as it is to us today, is the first known action of John. It sets the tone for his ministry, a ministry of joy in Jesus. For John, going about whatever daily business a fetus has, Jesus entered his world as a sweet surprise, a joyous revelation. And this was the root of John's ministry, lifelong. He was blessed with supportive parents, I, I recognise that too. For me, when I left medicine to work in a cross-cultural ministry role in Belfast, my parents supported me. I had sought their advice, of course, they helped me think through what I was doing, but 
They never once spoke against God's calling on my life, and I don't take that for granted. I'm thankful for parents who love the Lord and who were ready to lay aside the pride they felt in having a doctor as a son. If you had parents who supported your pursuit of ministry, then give thanks to God for them. If you didn't, thank God for whoever else it was who affirmed God's gifting in your life. But although John's parents were supportive, John, right right even in this moment, becomes a teacher to his parents. In this kick, he revealed to them the joy that comes from encountering the Messiah. That's where John's ministry flowed from. And as we read his words in the Gospels, and we'll look at some of those in the next few episodes in this series, we see that it's where John's ministry continued to emanate from joy in Jesus. So how can we guard our hearts against the resentment that can creep in after years of ministry with all of the knocks that come with it by maintaining our joy in Jesus, by stopping often to encounter him afresh, by letting the reality of God incarnate Saviour and Lord wash over us, by responding to the prompting of the Spirit of God who indwells us, to rejoice in him, to give thanks to God for him. That's where all authentic Christian ministry flows from, joy in Jesus, delight in salvation, wonder and worship. So I don't know as you listen to this whether your ministry at the moment feels easy or or is a real struggle. And I don't know much about you. I don't know whether you're highly gifted in multiple areas. You would win the Pastor of the Year award, hands down, if there were such a thing. Thankfully, there's not, I don't think. I don't know, maybe that's you, or maybe you're uh, somebody who has to work really hard in one thing to get it right. I don't know if your ministry would be judged successful in terms of visible results, as if anybody could judge it that way, or whether you're labouring away without much to show for it. But what I do want to remind you, whichever of those categories you're in, is that your value as a servant of Christ does not come from what you've achieved or what you have the potential to achieve. I think John's first action tells us that as well. It wasn't much, just the flexing of some muscles. It only impacted one person, his mother Elizabeth. But look at the ripple effects. She testified to what she had experienced. And she did that to none other than Mary, this pregnant, unmarried girl who I'm sure needed reassurances and encouragements. Elizabeth was there at the right moment to bring support to the mother of our Lord. And it was John who prompted her, quite literally giving her a kick in the guts to spur her on. A simple action impacting one person that had ripple effects of encouragement, blessing, and spurring others on in Christian service. So what makes us suitable to serve God is not our past achievements or qualifications. Fetal John had none of those. It's not our ability or skill. Fetal John had very little of those. It's not even our potential for great Greatness in the future, although Fetal John had plenty of that. Rather, it's our capacity to find joy in Christ that suits us 
to the role of sharing him with others. It's the fact that we've been saved and we have a great saviour to testify to. And that's so radically different from our world of struggle for physical domination, intellectual prowess and business success. The systems of comparison and competition that so readily creep into the church. How wonderfully freeing this truth is that whatever your abilities, inabilities or disabilities, you have a part in God's purpose. And that whether you have charisma by the bucketful or prefer to shrink into the nearest corner, you can testify to the Lord's goodness and greatness. You can praise Jesus and inspire others to adoration too, with a simple jump or exclamation or roll of the eyes. I've been privileged to see just this in friends with profound intellectual disabilities and in children at an early age. Perhaps you've seen it there too, or maybe in a loved one whose mental capacity is declining due to dementia, but who can still add an amen or a hallelujah to your prayers, your readings of the Psalms, or a familiar hymn. So if a fetus can jump for joy, and if those people whose intellectual abilities are so limited can speak praise, why can't you? The problem is, I suppose, that as we journey through life, we pick up all sorts of negative vibes and painful wounds. We learn to think and we think ourselves into gloom. Sometimes we just need to loosen up our limbs and let joy grip us once again. The joy that comes from knowing that our Lord is near and that he is in us. And this first action of John reminds us to keep our estimation of ourselves in perspective. Yes, he had a special part in God's purposes, a unique role, but John's significance was not derived from his giftedness or his achievements. It came simply from his devotion to God and his delight in Christ. That's the first lesson we must learn from him. For John, Jesus was pure joy. John was, as C.S. Lewis famously described his own conversion, surprised by joy. And this joy came long before John ever said a word and before anyone looked askance at the intriguing figure he would later cut. It came long before he submerged anyone in water while he was still submerged in amniotic fluid. John's joy was not because he was a preacher who made an impact. It wasn't because of anything he achieved. It was joy from another place. The strange elation of discovering that the Lord is near in the person of Jesus. And so can we be if we'll just draw near to Jesus and let ourselves encounter him. Let's pray. Father, you've known me from the moment I was conceived. Plans for me were in your mind even before that. I have many limitations. My gifts and abilities seem so few. Whatever they are, I offer them to you. May my service for you flow from delight in Jesus, your Son, and my Saviour and Lord. Help me to appreciate him again. May my heart, if not my body, leap for joy. Help me too to be inspired by the adoration of others, especially those who are counted less in our success-driven world. May I never underestimate the value of a human individual. May I see their significance in your purpose. And may I learn to love and value them 
just as you do. And may I share Jesus with them, inspiring them to worship him. May my attitudes and actions bring joy to you and to others. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Living Leadership Podcast. We hope what you've heard today spurs you on in your walk with the Lord. If you're encouraged by today's episode, consider sharing it with a friend or colleague or leaving us a review on your podcast app of choice to help others find us. If you'd like to engage further with us on anything we've discussed today, we'd love to hear from you. You can find us on any major social media application at Living Leaders, or you can visit our website, www.livingleadership.org, where you'll find even more support and resources to help you live in Christ joyfully and serve him faithfully. Blessings. Blessings.